0: As the life of David comes more fully into view through our studies of 2 Samuel, let's remember what we learned about chapter 7, that this is a pivotal portion of Scripture that serves as a basis for understanding the importance of David's prominent place in the balance of the Old Testament and in the foundation of the New Testament. We know that David was the greatest king of Israel, an ancestor of Jesus Christ, and a man described by God himself as a man after his own heart. When we think of David, we remember a shepherd, a poet, a warrior, and one of the premier personalities in the Bible. And though David was moved from the sheep pasture to the throne of Israel, this promotion was not the result of ambition. As Charles Spurgeon said, David stands before us as an example of the fact that our opportunity will come without our being very particular to seek it. David fell into position, though he never sought it. There's so much to learn from David's humility his zeal for God, and even his failures. Tonight, our studies of 2 Samuel begin in chapter 8, as we continue to examine this book with Pastor Skip Heitzig, Line Online.
1: Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. Such a dramatic intro, it just swept me away. Um, Let me just share with you this gift that I got today from a dear friend of mine. It's called Masters of Surf Photography. (laughs) And uh, this uh, dear brother knew that I love both photography and uh, the water. Uh, surfing. And, you know, it's just it's a great book. And I was looking through it and, and you know, it's a bittersweet experience for me to look at a book like this. On one hand, it goes, oh, look at that. That's beautiful. Look at that wave. Oh, that's perfect. But the that's the sweet part. The bitter part is, look at that wave and I'm not in it. <laughs> look at that ocean and I'm not paddling out. And uh, my wife, in fact, subscribed to this thing called the Surf Journal, and I got it. Finally, after like a year, I just said, honey, we got to cancel it, because at first it's great, and then I started getting depressed, because that was such a part of my life and uh, my upbringing, and I lived four blocks from the ocean, went surfing every day, and now it's gone. <laughs> but, however, the Lord is good to remind me. Yeah, but look what I've done in your life. So, oh, you got something taken away like H2O. So what? You've got living water. You've got my work working through your life. And, you know, that's sort of what, what David has gone through. That's where David is. David, God reminds him in chapter 7, David, I took you from the sheepfolds, Now, listen, that was a good life in Bethlehem. David camped out under the stars every night and just saw the brilliant display of God's handiwork, and he kept his father's sheep, and it was a simple life, and he loved it, and he became great at flinging stones and being accurate, but all that was preparing him for later on being a warrior and later on being a shepherd over a nation, So it's, okay, Dave, I've taken you away from the sheepfolds, but look what I've given you in place of it. You're the king of a nation now. You're a ruler. And whenever God takes something away, I think God doesn't add. I think he multiplies. I think he does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, if we're in a position to receive it from him. In chapter 8 as in other chapters. What God has given David gets bigger. It expands. The kingdom expands. The geopolitical borders of the nation of Israel expand farther and greater than ever before. In fact, it was during the reign of David that Israel saw its golden years, David and Solomon, in terms of mere political Geographical expansion. The borders of the land are becoming consolidated. And David, beginning at Hebron, a tiny little city-state, expands to Jerusalem, then all of the tribes of Israel, then more land and more land and more land, all the way to what God promised Abraham the borders would be, the Euphrates River. And so we see an expansion. God made David great. It would help if I open my Bible. God made him great, and now things are actually growing. And chapter 8 is how the borders are expanded. It's a series of political victories and military victories where the borders of Israel are expanded. Um, If I were to give a title... To this message tonight, these three chapters, hopefully, that we're going to look at, I would call it a conquering ruler. A I forget the rest of it. Let's just get into the text. (laughs) After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab. Look at verse 3. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer of the sons of Rahab, the king of Zobah, and he went to recover his territory at the Euphrates River. Now basically, the chapter is outlined like that. David did this, then David did that, then David took that, then David took this, then David defeated them, then David defeated the rest of them. And the author wants you to know that David's rulership is being expanded. He is a conquering ruler. He is taking more and more land. And what's really cool is that he takes, in verse 1, a place called Metheg Amah. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. But the city Gath means something to us. And this is the same city as the city of Gath. Do you remember there was a time when David went into the city of Gath And he acted like he was nuts. He acted like he was crazy. Because the king of Gath saw David and thought, you know, if if David says, if he finds out it's me, David, working for Israel, I'm toast. If I act like an idiot, nothing's going to happen to me. And the king said, hey, don't I have enough madmen in this territory? Do I need another one? Now David is the ruler over the city of Gath. And the city of Gath was... HQ headquarters, it was the main controlling town. In fact, this this term here, Metheg Amah, literally means the bridal of the mother city. Because Gath was the bridal, it was the controlling city of the five Philistine cities down south. You may remember the five Philistine cities. There was Ashdod, Ashkelon, there was Gath, there was Ekron, and there was Gaza. But the headquarters for the Philistine empire, once they came in from the seas, this Phoenician group of uh, warriors was the city of Gath. Now David takes it and pushes them back, and the Philistines will soon be completely out of the land. In verse 2, he takes Moab. This is now east of the Jordan River, the area of modern-day Jordan. In verse 3, David also defeated Hadad Ezer, the son of Rahab, the king of Zobah. Zobah is north of Damascus in the area of Syria. So he's pushing eastward, he's pushing northward, he's pushing southward. He can't push westward because that's the Mediterranean Sea. So he's taking territory. And notice, he is recovering his territory at the river Euphrates. It interests me that David didn't just take new territory, but he recovered old ground that had been lost in the kingdom. And I think there's a principle, perhaps. I find that sometimes the Lord wants us to face old enemies, things that we thought are long gone. Areas of our life that have been maybe taken over by the enemy and maybe we don't realize how strong the enemy is in a certain area. And years later, down the road, God allows something or someone to come back in our life to test us so that we would regain that territory, so to speak, for the Lord. The easiest thing to do is to run away. And sometimes we just want to Come to Christ, move on and forget about all of those areas that have been stolen from us from the enemy. And sometimes the Lord would have us face those enemies. I had a roommate named Dennis Kanine. He was an emergency room physician, brilliant guy, a brilliant scholar, a one-time evolutionist, scientist who became a Christian and was not only converted to Christ, but converted to the truth of creationism and defended it ardently, scientifically. And after he came to Christ and just sort of pushed all that aside and those people aside and his previous contacts aside, the Lord brought him to a place in his life where he wanted him to contact his old buddies, his other professors that he had worked with. And begin a dialogue with them and deal with that territory and deal with those people. And maybe, maybe people that have slighted you or that you haven't forgiven, the Lord would have you face them again and take back that territory and say, Look, it's now the Lord's. This area is redeemed and sanctified. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, also David, hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for a hundred chariots." Now what does that mean, hamstrung a horse? It means to cut the tendon, the sinew of the back legs. It doesn't render the horse completely um, useless. It renders the horse unable to fight in a battle. And because these were battle-ready horses, these could be used eventually by the enemy or even eventually by Israel for future warfare. And so the question is, okay, you're cutting the tendon of a horse to prevent the horse from future involvement in a battle, either for the enemy, but in this case, for your own use. Why? Well, it's an interesting thing, but God in Deuteronomy said, when a king sits on the throne of Israel, he shall not multiply horses unto himself. Why? What's wrong with having more tanks, more guns, more horses, more ammo? Because eventually, the king will start trusting in the horses, trusting in the armament, trusting in his strength, in his military might, rather than trusting in the Lord. You know, Israel faced incredible odds, didn't they? There were some battles that were absolutely impossible on a human level for Israel to win. Gideon and the Midianites. Thousands and thousands and thousands of the enemy. Gideon has just 10,000. He goes, I'm, I'm outnumbered. And God says, well, actually, you have too many. What? Yeah, yeah, you have too many. Because if you win with only 10,000 against, say, 50,000 troops... You know, you're going to say, Wow, we're pretty good. You know, we were outnumbered and we beat them. So you need to ferret down your troops. So Gideon, go out there and say, Whoever is afraid and fearful, go home. So he went out there and announced it. Several thousand left. And so now he has a few men, and God says, Well, you still have too many, and eventually he's down to 300. And with that 300 the battle was won. Why? So that when the battle is won by 300 against 50,000, you go, that must have been God. Instead of, weren't we really great? No, this is impossible. You can't do that, but God can. And so David is obeying God. He's trusting in the Lord. Before the battle, as we saw a few chapters back, he would inquire of the Lord, do you want me to fight this enemy? Should I go to battle here? And that's why I believe, just as David prayed before battles were fought, we're possibly on the verge of an international mess. We need to be in prayer for our troops, for our president, for the cabinet, for the international leaders, and for our nation. Lest we trust in our armament and say, oh, this will be over in a week. We have so much stuff, but we're just going to annihilate them. Be careful. Let us trust in the Lord and ask God for wisdom as these rulers get together. This last Sunday, one of the members of the SWAT team, the FBI SWAT team, announced that they were going to go down south and do several functions, uh, arrests uh, that I can't tell you the details about, but they said, Chaplain, would you uh, come over and pray for us? So what a sight it was to be in the secured parking lot downtown of the FBI and have all the SWAT team around in a circle, as we were praying for God's wisdom and God's will and God's protection. And that's how David orchestrated his battles, lived his life, ran his nation. And for our part, we ought to do the same supporting in prayer, bathing in prayer what is going to come. And so David did not multiply horses to himself but but by the way, there is a problem. We look at this and go, David what a great guy, you're obeying God. But the same text said he should not multiply wives unto himself as well. And of course David just said, well you know that was way back then and the scripture means different things to different people and he just kind of aced that thing away, and made up his own rules, and it got him into trouble. Of course, his son was even worse. He had thousands of women around him, and he multiplied horses unto himself. And, of course, he went into idolatry as well. And the nation was plummeted into a very dark period of history. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Look down in verse 11. King David dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from the nations which he had subdued. With every victory, with every war that was won, David in turn went back to the Lord and whatever plunder he got used it for the furtherance of the Lord's work. He served the Lord in his career, in the totality of his life. Yes, he had blemishes, and we're going to see a major blemish next time we're together in chapters uh, 11 and 12. However, David, at this point, is putting God first. These are the glory years. He's fighting the Lord's battles. He's taking over the territory God had originally promised to the nation of Israel. And because David honored God, David's God honored David. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, Be clothed with humility, for God... Resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, before the mighty hand of God that He will exalt you in due time. When you humble yourself before the Lord, the Lord will exalt you, meaning put you in a prominent position because He knows you can handle it. You see, if your attitude is, God, don't you know I am so wonderful, you can't Afford to pass me up. I am such a choice instrument. No wonder you're passed up. Why doesn't anybody notice my great talents? Look, isn't God big enough to move you and to use you? So humble yourself before the Lord. And in due time, at the right time, he will exalt you. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus said, will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's an old adage, and it has scriptural precedent. It's a principle. The way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up. If you want to be in a place where God is honoring you or you're in a prominent position and you have greater influence in many ways among men and women, then go down and be willing to do anything. Because the way down is the way up. The way up is the way down. And that's easily seen in the, in the mentality between Satan and Jesus. What was Satan's mentality? I will exalt myself above the stars of God. I will ascend to the sides of the earth. I will be like the most high. He's going, I'll go up, up, up. God says, you're going down, down, down. To the pit, to hell. What did Jesus say? I'll go down, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself, humbled himself, became a man, obedient to the point of death. Jesus said, I'll go down, and the Father said, then I will exalt you, and your name will be above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You are never more like Jesus than when you humble yourself to serve. You are never more like Satan than when you exalt yourself into your own prominence. Look at me. That's what Satan did. That was his mentality. So, David, at this point in his life, is trusting God, praying before the battles, turning around and giving the victory and the glory back to God, even the spoils of the war. He took the shields of gold that belonged to the servants, brought them to Jerusalem. As we saw in verse 11, he dedicated these to the Lord, the gold and the silver. Now, what's going to happen with this stuff? Here we got shields, we got gold, silver, brass, all these precious metals, all this great plunder. What's going to happen to it? Any guess? The temple, exactly. David's desire was to build God a magnificent house. He said, man, I'm in this cool house, cedar paneling, smells good, looks good, and God's in this tent out back. He's camping out, and I'm living high on the hog. I want to build a temple. And you remember the story last time. Nathan the prophet said, David, do all that's in your heart. God said to the prophet, "Uh, go back and tell David that you misspoke because he's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a household, a dynasty, a lineage. But here's David and he's heartbroken, really, because he wanted to build God a house. It was his dream. Who will build the house? Solomon, his son. It was David's dream to do it. Who will fulfill the dream? His son. Don't be too grieved when God gives you a dream that somebody else fulfills. There was a standing joke early on in the ministry here in my family that the last place that Skip visited is the place we're going to move. Because I'd go to a place and I'd see it and go, this is where the Lord wants me. This is cool. There's such potential. Or we could start a church and we could do this. We could buy that. We could arrange this. And, and it became nerve-wracking for, for my family because I got so much vision. And I was here for a few years, and in my mind, I had already moved five times. I just moved here, but I wanted to move again and again and again. This can be unsettling. We were on the radio in Tucson, and I said, Honey, we need to move to Tucson. We're getting good radio response. We could start a church. We were on the radio in Denver. Honey, we didn't go to Tucson. Let's move to Denver now. And I even flew up to Denver once a month to do a Bible study on an off night in a hotel meeting room. It got up to a couple hundred people. I said, this is the Lord's will. we got to go for it. You know, we've established something. Let's move now. And I had all these big dreams overseas, domestically, and the Lord showed me, rather than moving all these places myself, just raise up men and women with the same vision and let that vision be fulfilled through them. So, if God gives you a vision, great. But then if he gives that vision to somebody else, help them fulfill the vision. Help them get there. Raise them up higher. Push them up higher. There's a great story I found on the internet about a Canadian goalie in 1956 who was in the Olympics. It was his dream to win the gold medal in the hockey team for the nation of Canada. They walked away in 1956 with the bronze. It's not what he wanted. But 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City, the Canadians took it, and the one that brought them victory was this goalie, this 1956 goalie's son, Martin. The goal was realized. Canada got the gold. But it was through this man who had the goal, who had the desire, who had the vision. It was through his son. Dream was fulfilled. Solomon is the one who's going to build that temple. And so, what is David doing? He's collecting money, man. He's collecting the plunder. He's funding the thing. Dads are good at that. And so David, verse 15, reigned over all of Israel, and he administered judgment and justice to all the people. And his staff, main staff, positions are given in the rest of the chapter. Now, if chapter 8 is a conquering leader, then chapter 9 is a kind gesture. The king makes a very kind overture. It's, this is one of my favorite Bible stories. Okay, I know you hear me say that a lot, so I have a lot of favorites, all right? But this is, is such a beautiful, touching story of kindness. Kindness. It's a kid by the name of Mephibosheth, who is the son of Jonathan, or the grandson of King Saul. He's still alive. But notice this. David said, is there still anyone who is left? Now, let me ask you this question before we go on, because just before the study, everybody's saying it was freezing in here. Now, it seems to me to be a little warm in here. Is that right? Like, almost like we're going to melt. Okay, that's what I thought. So maybe we can, we can fix that. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. Well, he should say that. You know why? David didn't know that there was somebody from the house of Saul that was left. He could have had Ziba killed for hiding the information from him. After all, it was customary, though not among God's people, but among ancient peoples, that if there's anyone left from the previous dynasty, they're to be executed if they are in contest for the throne, so that there would be no rivalry, no dynastic competition. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan... The last living relative of the household of Saul was this guy. David didn't know about it. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness, the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. We get some insight into the kind of person David was. It's unfortunately that often people when they, um, do we uh, get this thing wired? Are we getting that fixed? Somebody doing that? Okay, great. Because I see people actually starting to wilt now at this point. A lot of times when people think back historically to King David, they, they unfortunately remember his sin. Oh, yeah, David was the guy. He was the king, but he was the guy that committed adultery with Bathsheba. And of course we remember that, but all in all, David was a man after God's own heart and a kind man at heart. Oh, he had his moments of anger, but he was a kind man. And so often it's overlooked. You know, it's like, it's like the white shirt with the smudge on it. You never notice the white shirt. Nobody says to you, that's a beautiful white shirt. Who cares it's a white shirt? But you get a smudge on it, it'll draw attention. People will notice it. You got a smudge on your shirt. <laughs> Take care of it, would you? And so we look at David's life, and for the most part, there's a lot of white there. But we like to notice the smudges. Unfortunately, we talk about them. They make David into a bad person. But David was kind here. He opened up his heart. He was looking for someone to show kindness to. And it happened to be this kid by the name of Mephibosheth. Somebody once said that there is so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us that it behooves most of us not to talk about the rest of us. Could have been David's policy. And so... The king sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel. From Lodabar, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth? I'm sure that's just a hard name to say. It is, even for me. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Rather than having him executed, he has him exalted. Why? Because of a covenant. That's why. That's what he says. The word kindness, by the way, mentioned three times in these verses is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed means covenant love or faithfulness based upon a covenant, an agreement. When David was being hunted by Saul, Jonathan's father, David said, you know, your dad's going to kill me. Oh, no, I would have known about it. No, he's going to kill me. And they're about to part company. Jonathan says, David, in my heart I realize that I'm not going to be the king that you're going to be the next king. God has chosen you. I want you to make a covenant with me here and now that you'll be kind to me, and not just to me while I'm alive, but kind to my house after me. David said, done deal, man. We love each other. And they made a covenant right there before the Lord. David is fulfilling his covenant of kindness that he made to Jonathan, the father of Mephibosheth. Now, I do see an incredible parallel between Mephibosheth and you and me. Mephibosheth was living in a place called Lodabar, which means barren. It was this barren, dry, hot desert place down by the Dead Sea on the other side of the Jordan River. No life no ability to go out and make something of himself. His, his life was one of barrenness, emptiness. And the Bible describes our life that way before we came to Christ. And I would even say, just from personal testimony, my life was barren, empty, no purpose, no direction, until 1973 when I met Jesus Christ. There's a second parallel here. Mephibosheth had experienced a fall and could not walk. He was lame in his feet. You and I have experienced a fall, and we're unable to walk before God. Now, it's Adam's fault, but we were in Adam. Romans chapter 5 tells us, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, for all men have sinned. And so, because of our father Adam who blew it for us, like Saul, Jonathan's dad, blew it for him and his kid. We have somebody who was hidden, Mephibosheth was hidden while he was young, and there was problems in the kingdom. He fell a few chapters back, it tells us, and he was lame in his feet, so he couldn't walk. He experienced a fall and was unable to walk. So he was in a helpless position. I used to have people tell me, including my own father. God helps those who help themselves, young man. He even said one time, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. So I got my concordance. I looked up the word God. I looked up helps. I looked up themselves. I looked up every word in that little axiom and discovered the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says something like, when we were helpless... Christ died for the ungodly. When we were without strength, totally helpless, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. And so often the problem is we try to walk before God and to please God on our own. I'll be better, God. I'll do it. Count on me. And we keep falling because we we lack the strength. There needs to be an inward change that occurs. You must be born all over again, Jesus said. So this guy experienced a fall, was unable to walk. He was totally helpless. The next thing that is a parallel is that David sought him out, rescued him, and cared for him forever. Just like God sent Jesus Christ into this world, God sought you out. There is none that seeks God, no, not one. God sought you out. God chose you from before the foundations of the world. God rescued you, and and God cares for you perpetually. Romans 8, if God didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So we experience very much the same as Mephibosheth. So he tells Ziba, you guys care for the kid, give back his land, he's going to eat as one of my sons. Then he bowed himself, verse 8, and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called Aziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. There's another parallel. Mephibosheth was not one of his natural sons but he treated him like he was. You might say he adopted him. Why? Because he made a covenant with Jonathan. And because of Jonathan, for the sake of Jonathan, Mephibosheth became as one of his sons. Just like for the sake of Jesus Christ, God made you one of his sons. Having predestined us, Paul said in Ephesians 2, to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ. We're not part of the natural family. We've been grafted in. We have been redeemed and placed as sons. And we are treated kindly by God. So verse 13, the end of the chapter, Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. Don't get the idea that he was eating 24 hours a day nonstop and (laughs) bloating like... Job of the hut, the idea is that all of his meals were taken at the king's table for the rest of his life. And it kind of ends with a a sad reminder, and he was lame in both of his feet, unable to care for himself, so the king cared for him. Let's learn a lesson. Let's not just take this in a spiritual kind of a configuration as God being kind to us and God showing grace to us. But but look at it this way. Because God has been kind to us and showed us unconditional love, therefore, based upon that, we should forgive and be kind to and reach out and be gracious to others. Again, Ephesians. Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And so the lesson is that kindness flows not only vertically from God to us, but horizontally from us to other people. One of the marks of a child of God, one of the evidences that a person has been born again, is saved, is a Christian, is his or her life takes on a new temperament, a new outlook toward people, a kindness toward others, a respect toward others. Let's flesh that out. Let's begin at home. Let's look at our own home for a minute and consider the relationship we have with a husband or a wife. How's how's the kindness level there? What kind of words are you used to saying to her or him? What do you want? Get out of my way. You're always in my way. I would venture to say, that's not very kind. Then expand outward. Friends that you have, Christian friends that you have. Let's keep it just in the church for a moment. The Bible says that we are to be kind to one another. We are to do good things for one another, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then expand the border outward. Your relationship with people at work. Distant relatives that knock on the door when uninvited. People that work in the parking lot on Sundays that park our cars. Ushers that want to help serve the whole body, not just you, but everybody. How is kindness? You know, when Paul described love, did he not say love is kind? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind. See, it's not enough to to, to claim a negative goodness. Well, I love my wife because I don't beat her. I love my children because I don't make them sleep outside when it's 30 degrees. So? So? What do you do that is kind, that is good, that is noble, that reflects the love and the life and the graciousness of the God who is so kind and good to you? So the lesson is that kindness should flow horizontally. I received a letter that is precious to me. It was a letter after a group from our church had helped someone. It's just a portion of it. In the letter, it said, I've always heard good things about Calvary. My experience last Saturday confirmed the good news. A large group of your youth came through the neighborhood raking leaves and cleaning up, not for money, but for Christian love. I was working outside, and your group leaders came over to chat. Later, right there on the sidewalk, in that wonderful autumn sunshine, we had a prayer spoken by a beautiful young person. As she spoke, you could feel the love of Jesus Christ surrounding us. The group left behind not only a cleaner neighborhood, but one where the Christian spirit still seems to linger. What a great testimony. These are your children. Kindness. Hey, I got an idea. It's Saturday. We don't have school. Why don't we go work in somebody's yard that we have no idea who they are, we've never met them before, and see what God will do. It's such a great concept, kindness. And that was sort of David. He woke up and he goes, hey, I wonder if there's anybody living from Saul's household that I can show kindness to. And he did. And it went a long way with this Mephibosheth. Well, we go now from a kind gesture to a cold shoulder. David is kind, and he shows kindness to Mephibosheth, and it's accepted. But now he wants to show kindness to his neighbor in a province just east of him, in a place called Ammon. Again, modern-day Jordan. You've heard of the city of Ammon, Jordan? That's where the ancient Ammonites lived. The name is still retained, uh, though a variant spelling. But he got a cold shoulder. It happened after this, the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanun, his son, sounds like you got somebody from the south saying it's high noon. Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will show kindness. Listen to this guy. What a great president. What a great king. I want to be kind to my neighbor, Hanun, the son of Nahash, As his father showed me kindness, so David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Same word, by the way. Chesed, covenant love. Loving kindness. Faithfulness. We don't know, but probably this guy that is mentioned here in verse 1, Nahash, the father who's dead. Nahash probably gave David asylum in his country, the country of Ammon, the city-state of Ammon. When he was fleeing from Saul, we know that David did go to that side of the Jordan, and probably this guy said, David, stay with me, I'll protect you. After all, Saul is your enemy, and Saul is my enemy, so we have something in common. We both don't like Saul. You can stay with me. Now that he's dead, his son's in his place, David says, I'm going to reach out to this guy whose dad reached out to me. I'm going to be kind. But rather than having that accepted, he's cold-shouldered. He is rejected. The princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Do you know people like that? Any overture of kindness, they look at you weird like, why are you doing this? You know why? Because they are looking at life through the lens of what they would do. Rather than thinking the highest, here's somebody to show me love. But see, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't show love. These guys wouldn't think of, let's go over and comfort somebody whose dad has died. Let's go show kindness. Let's get up Saturday morning and help somebody. They they view life and misjudge everybody else based on what they are like. It's very insightful into their character when you see the response of an overture of kindness being snubbed. It shows you the kind of person they are. So it's, it's very sad because it's going to cost them 50,000 dead men on their side. Has David not rather sent servants to search out the city to spy it out and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off their beards, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks. I know that sounds really weird. And you know what? It is. <laughs> what are they doing? What are they thinking? Okay, let's do something really bad. Let's just like shave off half their beard and cut off their garments at the buttocks. Okay, why? To humiliate them, that's why. A beard was a sign of virility in those days. We're men, we can grow beards. In some circles it still is. How do you like the beard? I'm a man. And it was a symbol of freedom because slaves were compelled to shave their faces. Men had the freedom to grow them. So they humiliated these guys, sent them back, and look at what David does. He... he, He sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho till your beards have grown and then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. Yeah, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians. So this is what happens. They realize, "Uh uh-oh, dumb thing to do. Now David's really mad at us. So they hire mercenaries up in Syria. The very ones that David had just conquered, pre- previous couple chapters, they're mad at David, so they'll hire themselves out. So we have Syrians now and Ammonites together fighting against Israel. So what happens? Joab, commander in chief, gets the battle set up, takes his brother Abishai. You remember Joab and Abishai and Azael, their brother that was killed, the first part of our book. These two brothers are left, they're fighters, they're experienced. Joab says, okay, bro, you take half the army, I'll take the other half of the army. I'll fight on this front, you fight on that front. If they start getting the better of you, I'll see it and I'll come and help you. If they start getting the better of me, you come and help me. And so these experienced fighters divide and conquer. And 50,000 Ammonites and Syrians, combination, were killed in the battle. But I want you to go down now to verse 11. As Joab is priming his brother for the battle, he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Now notice this. Be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Did you catch that? There is a balance, it seems to me, and I would add a good balance between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. A hot debate in theological circles. Some will say, it's all God. It's all God's sovereignty. Others say, oh, no, it's man's responsibility. Here we have an interesting combination of... Be courageous, fight hard, do good, and you know what? The Lord's sovereign. He'll do what is best to him. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, merged into one verse. It's a good example. Good balance. God ordains the end, but God also ordains the means to the end. What was the end? Victory. What was the means to the end? Be a good soldier. Use strategy. Use your head. Fight hard. Be of good courage. Go out there and get them. When it comes to salvation, there are those who would say, you should never have an altar call. You should never call people forward to Christ. You should never have them come and stand and say, do you want to receive Christ? And I say, well, why? Well, because... That's human effort. That's us doing something. It's all God. It's sovereign. God elects. There's there's no really free will in man. And this is my answer. God ordains the end, but he also ordains the means to the end. God can select in advance and predestine people to be saved, but why can't God ordain as the means to the end an altar call? It's funny, a lot of these people who denounce that form of evangelism usually do absolutely no evangelism. They just like to find people who do evangelism and say, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Dwight L. Moody was faced with the same kind of problem. Somebody went up to him and criticized Dwight L. Moody because he sort of made famous in his day the altar call. He called people forward to receive Christ. And this woman said, she didn't like that. It was theatrical and glorified the flesh. And Moody said, can I ask you a question, dear woman? Tell me how you do evangelism. How do you lead people to Christ? Tell me your method, your style of bringing lost sinners to the Savior. She goes, well, I don't do that. He goes, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. Okay? Okay. It was interesting. I was uh, several years ago at uh, Billy Graham's house in North Carolina, and we were talking about one of my favorite authors, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. Love him. I love the way he treats the text. I have great admiration for him. I even have a, a signed copy of one of his greatest books on the Book of Romans. But he said, "You know, in the early years of my evangelism, when, when we were in England, I met with Dr. Jones, and." He wasn't supporting our crusades. And I went to meet with him and I asked him, Dr. Jones, how come you're not supporting our crusade? Would you consider coming along and announcing it and being a part of it and being on the platform? He said, Billy, I will if you don't give an altar call. My heart was broken. I thought, he said that to you? Did you hit him? Well, I did. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> but because of his strong Calvinistic leanings, he believed that it was just unacceptable to actually call a person forward. And people say, well, you know, that's just the work of man, and these people really aren't necessarily called by God. Listen, I am the result of somebody standing in a stadium and giving an altar call, and it was Billy Graham. And I was watching by television. And if I was going to be in those stands at that Washington crusade, I would have come forward. But I wasn't. I was watching it on television. And people did say, oh, it's just a fad. It won't last. Well, you know what? Many years later, it's now 2003, it ain't no fad. It's stuck. God ordains the end, but also the means toward the end. And so I love this. Be courageous. Go for it. Put your effort into it. And the Lord will do what he wants. So, the battle was won, and verse 19, and we close here. And when all the kings who were servants of, to Hadad-Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So next time the Ammonites called, I think these guys just hung up the phone. So, the Lord is just blessing David's life. Made him a covenant promise in chapter 7. Said he'd build him a household. Said he'd be with him the rest of his life. His son would sit on the throne. The kingdom would be established forever. Chapter 8, we see that promise starting to be fulfilled. The expansion of the borders. And we see a kind king reaching out in two chapters. One chapter is accepted. The other chapter, it's rejected. Even as today God reaches out in his kind and some accept and others reject. You tell people about Jesus, why are you telling me this? What's in it for you? you got some ulterior motive for telling me this. You just want me in your church so I'll give more money. Or whatever it would be. Just receive Christ. You're dealing with Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Something else... Let's end on this note, something we touched on Sunday. God made promises to David. God was with David and preserved him wherever he went. God made sure the borders were expanded, but David is still fighting battles. And you know, in your life, when God makes you a promise, and he's made a lot of them to you in the word, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy street. It doesn't mean all you have to do is confess and claim your promise and skate through life with a miracle every day, every minute, every hour. Expect to have heated battles where you're going to need to be courageous. It's part of living the Christian life. Amy Carmichael, a great missionary, wrote a great little poem called No Scar? Hast thou no scar? And she writes it as if Jesus were saying it to us. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail your great resplendency. Hast thou no scar? He cannot have travelled far that hath no wound or scar. Hey, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you got a few scars. You're you're battle weary in some areas. You've been fighting different fronts. Oh, the Lord's been there, and the Lord promises victory, but you're still fighting, maybe a temptation, maybe an area of the flesh against a stronghold of the enemy. Maybe somebody at work has given you hassle week after week, month after, it's just wearing on you. And you're thinking, oh, you know, if if I was just a heathen again, I wouldn't fight these battles. You're right. But is it worth it? Let's see. I'm going to go back to being a heathen and I don't want to go through these trials. I'll go to hell, but that's okay. No! (laughs) Be steadfast. Be courageous. Be courageous. Humble yourself before God. Trust in God's promises. Go out this week, the rest of the week. Be courageous in the name of the Lord, trusting him. Not your own prowess, not your own articulation, not your own devices. Trust the Lord. And watch what he does. Let it be an adventure. Let it be an adventure. Heavenly Father, we haven't given up anything. We have received everything. Some of us, Lord, are dealing with an attitude problem. We think inwardly, what we've done, what we've given up, how hard we've worked for your name. But really, Lord, you're the one who has made the promises, you're the one who's given the power, the provision. And Lord, you'll see us through because we have your presence. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. You even promised that you'd be hated by all nations for my name's sake, that they would deliver you up, that a man's enemies would even be of his own household. And some of us here tonight have experienced that. Lord, strengthen your people tonight. Strengthen us inwardly to go back out, to fight the battle, to be courageous, to be strong. That we might be victorious, 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 That we might be victorious.